Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about when anxiety or OCD themes in and of themselves impact treatment. That can impact how you're trying to approach it at home. It can impact medication and it can impact therapy. And so we're not talking about just anxiety and OCD. We're talking about their particular theme or their fear or their discomfort is is playing with what will actually help them. It is interacting and sabotaging what will help them. And that happens a lot in different ways. And so I want to talk about the different ways that can happen just to make you aware of it. And then what do we do about it? Because that's always the ultimate question. And I always like to end with some concrete support for you to take action at the end of any podcast I do so that you know what your next steps might be. But before we get started, a couple of things. I want to thank NoCD for sponsoring this episode. NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy. They are available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. And you can schedule your free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is the right fit for you and your child. Just go to treatmyocd.com. That's treatmyocd.com. I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you haven't reached out to them in a while, you might want to circle back because I know they have added more countries and more insurance panels they are working with. And so you know, periodically I would check back with them. Okay. Another announcement is it is that time of the year again, where I am doing my self-care series for parents who are raising kids with anxiety or OCD. And so if you are committed to taking a week to focus on yourself, put the oxygen mask on yourself so that you can actually help your kids in a much more fruitful, effective way, then join me in my free series. It is beginning soon and you can learn all about it and sign up at atparentingsurvivalseries.com. Okay, let's get into this topic today. So I broke it down into different categories, and they are really different, but I think it's important to see the many different ways that anxiety and OCD will try to sabotage treatment. And this is not all-encompassing. I'm going to miss things because it's not an exhaustive list of ways that anxiety or OCD can be creative in sabotaging treatment. I actually just thought of another one. I'm going to pause and add that to my list. All right. I added that. (laughs) We'll get to it. You'll find out what that was. Okay. So let's just start talking about the first one, which is true with both anxiety and OCD. And that is if I talk about my anxiety or OCD, then I'm actually going to make it worse. And so that is the number one first barrier is don't talk about me. You talk about me and you're going to feel really anxious or I'm going to give you more intrusive thoughts, or these issues are going to actually happen, or they're going to think you're crazy. Whatever that thought is, it slows kids down and sometimes completely blocks them from talking about anxiety or OCD, or even admitting that they're having anxiety or OCD. That's a problem. Because when you're stonewalled, because your child's anxiety or OCD is saying, if you talk about me, and I personify it, so I'm talking about like it's a big bully, but if you talk about me, I'm going to make it a lot worse for you. And so you find that with kids who use distraction techniques all the time. With OCD, it can be a little bit different. It could be a little bit more nuanced where it is, 
I'm going to give you more intrusive thoughts if you talk about this, or they're going to think you're crazy. You can have more of those type of things as well. And so I'm going to go over the many different ways anxiety and OCD can sabotage treatment. And then after the break, I'm going to talk about what we can do about each one of them, just so that we can kind of go down the list. The second one is medication. And so if I have anxiety around swallowing pills or anxiety about health anxiety, and I feel like, oh my gosh, what about the side effects? And we have some psychiatrists who are not savvy enough to maybe talk to the parent about the side effects and not, you know, scare the child. There is a way to notify our kids about side effects and educate the parent without triggering their health anxiety. But that is, uh, that's a skill and an art and some psychiatrists are not, you know, don't have that or aren't thinking that they maybe should have that. The other issues around medication outside of anxiety, well, we'll stay with anxiety for a second. So there's choking and there's the health anxiety, the side effects, there can be the taste. It can make me throw up. If I have a metaphobia, you're going to give me something that has a side effect. That's going to make me nauseous. That's scary. When you have OCD themes that can run rampant as well. And it can be so many different things. I'm just, I'm just highlighting some of them because there can be so many, but I might have contamination issues and I might have poison issues and I'm not sure. I don't want to put something in my body. I don't know if it's safe or not, or someone else is touching it, or I'm worried. I have a metaphobia, the fear of throw up, like I mentioned. And so I don't want to take something that's going to make me feel sicker. Or what if this makes me sick? Or what if this validates and and confirms that I am crazy? You're giving me something that makes me feel crazy. So there's a whole bunch of things that the actual theme, you could have existential OCD where you're like, I don't want to not be myself. I don't want to turn into somebody else. And there might be this story that they're telling themselves that if I take medication, it will change who I am um, because it's going to attack my anxiety or OCD. And then it might change who I am as a person, which is my core fear. So you can see where it could be a lot of different core fears for different reasons. Another one is for separation anxiety. You know, a lot of times therapists want to meet with the child alone. And so the whole nature of therapy is separating. And that might be very triggering because it's their core fear. And so how do I do separation anxiety when I want to meet alone with the child and their core fear is separating from the parent? Or they do separate from the parent and they're spending the whole session worrying about what the parent is doing when they're coming back. And so that can show up and present itself very strongly in the therapy session. We'll talk about what to do with these things in a moment. Two more that I wanted to highlight, and certainly not the only ones, but the ones I'm highlighting today. Another one is social anxiety. If I have a hard time worrying about people's judgment and criticism, I'm going to feel very vulnerable telling you, the therapist, all the things that I worry people are judging me about because social anxiety doesn't just stop when I enter a therapy office. So now I'm worried about how does the therapist perceive me? Do they like me? I want to please them. I want to do the work or I don't want to talk because it's embarrassing. It will manifest differently. Like all the things I'm talking about will manifest differently depending on the child, the child's personality, their core fears and how it's showing up. But with social anxiety, They can show up as opposition. I've worked with kids where they were really oppositional and, you know, hostile to me because they're worried about judgment. They're worried about vulnerability. They're worrying about opening up. Um, I've worked with kids who wouldn't talk at all, some in a shy way, but some in an aggressive way. And I've worked with people pleasers and that can be many different anxiety and OCD themes. If I'm perfectionistic, 
or I have moral OCD and I want to be really good. I want to be a good therapist. And so I want to show up as the best patient or client you've ever had. Well, that kind of skews treatment as well. You can have kids who have OCD issues around numbers. And then you have a therapist who says, you know, tell me on a one to 10 scale, what number do you feel stressed about? And if they have favorite numbers or numbers they avoid, they might not be giving you an accurate number. If they have intrusive thoughts that say they're lying, they might say, I'm a four. No, I'm a six. No, I'm a five. So sometimes knowing the issues around numbers or moral OCD can be really important as well because that shows up in therapy sessions. And so these are really important things to know because then you have to like scrape the whole number thing because that's that's actually not helping. And we'll talk about that. I want to not move into solutions. I'm just trying to talk about the problems first. But you can also have kids who confess in session. And this has happened to me and it actually caught me off guard, to be honest. And I didn't catch it for a little while where there were two things that happened. One, um, I had kids who would say in the middle of me talking, they'd say, I'm not listening to you. <laughs> and at first it kind of caught me off guard. Like, wait, what? Cause I'm like in the middle of, you know, telling them something that I think is really helpful. And then they're like, I'm not listening to you. I'm so sorry. I'm not listening to you. I haven't been listening to you at all. I've been like, you know, daydreaming or something. And it took me a while to realize, and it's not with every kid, but this particular child had moral OCD. And this was very much of the essence of how their OCD showed up was they felt like they, there were two components that I've had with multiple kids. One is I, I don't think I'm fully understanding things. So the kids that reread and have to re-listen and they, they, they have the doubt that they fully understood something. They ask a lot of questions because they feel like they don't get it. My son does that. And it's really frustrating because I'm like, I thought you're a smart kid, but he asks questions over right over here, mom. You mean this door? You mean right over here? And you're like, oh my gosh, yes, that door, the one right in front of your face. Um, and I try to have more patience, but a lot of times I don't, but you have that issue of that doubt of, am I listening to her? Am I fully getting this or am I not listening at all? The second one is moral OCD, where sometimes you have kids who will confess, I don't think I read that book today, or I didn't do my homework assignment. And they did, but then they'll say, well, I don't think I really did it fully, or I didn't really care enough. And so with that particular child, when they said, I'm not listening to you, it took me a while, but I realized they have this issue of being honest and their moral OCD says they were lying. And you better confess to her that you're not listening because you're not listening, you know, and you're lying to act like you're sitting there listening. And so that can mess up treatment if you don't have a therapist who's aware of that. And that can show up as parents as well, where you might have your child say, I'm not listening or I don't understand. And it's the anxiety or OCD, but it can impact treatment if it's taken at face value and the therapist is thinking, you know, your child has maybe some developmental delays or some processing issues or they're oppositional and being difficult. And so that's something to be aware of as well. With people pleasing, it can impact treatment because everything looks so rosy when they come into your office. And so they're like, yep, did all my homework. Yep. I'm a one, you know, one to 10. How are you? It's a two, it's a one. And then that's why it's really important to tap into the parent and get a different perspective because When you have a people-pleasing child or who wants to be perfectionistic, they don't want anything wrong with them, coming into therapy in and of itself is stigmatizing. No matter how much you normalize and validate what they're experiencing, just being imperfect by having to go to a therapist in and of itself is 
is confirming their worst fears. And so that becomes a big issue. And the last one I want to mention is that when kids are starting to make progress, then another issue will pop up because, and this is with OCD, OCD is a ninja. It's a chess playing ninja. It is not a a checkers player. I say that a lot just so that you understand the difference. And anxiety is checkers. And that doesn't mean that checkers is not a rough game. It is. It's apples and oranges. But it's chess with OCD because it makes these counter moves that you don't see coming. And it's outsmarting. It can see like five moves ahead. And when a child is making progress, sometimes then OCD will say, you know what? I don't think you had OCD ever. I think you made the whole thing up. And so then you actually need to address that in treatment because if you don't, then you, you know, you let someone go and you, you know, discharge therapy or you're into a maintenance mode and the child's in a full-blown theme of, I don't have OCD. I never had OCD. And they feel really bad about themselves. They're doubting everything. They're not wanting to do exposures because they never really had OCD and it can blow up progress at the very end of the finish line, although there is really no finish line, but it's that like you've kind of climbed that mountain, you feel like you've gotten all those skills, and then all of a sudden OCD's like, you didn't climb a thing. You know, you're just landed here. You didn't really need to climb, it's flat. <laughs> so very confusing. So after the break, I'm gonna talk, I'm gonna go through all of these once again. And I'm gonna talk about some approaches that you can take or that the therapist can take to make your own counter move in the chess game of anxiety and OCD. Checkers and chess. <laughs> Stay tuned, we'll be right back. It's time we put help directly in our kids' hands. Introducing Crushing OCD Course for Kids and Teens. It was way more helpful than all the other therapy we've ever done because we didn't really know what to do. So we weren't really doing it before. So the course helped to figure out what the exposures are and how to do them. We're not in therapy and find it really hard um, to find an ERP trained therapist here. Um, So we're currently with like the public health service, but again, they don't seem to be trained in ERP. It's filled that gap that we don't have that was desperately needed. This was really well timed for us to use between therapists and to help us like start get off to a good start with this new practice. It was easy to use. Um, I was able to do it from my phone or also on the computer. There's different ages, you know, so there were younger kids, there were teenagers. And um, so that was really nice too to have a variety of ages where it wasn't just geared towards younger kids or older kids. It was a nice variety. It's helpful for our kids to hear it from this like third party as opposed to just us saying it. I really like the offense and defense method. I love working on poking at OCD while it's sleeping. It makes it a little bit easier to do and it's kind of fun. <laughs> I'm planning on using it to work on my uh, fear of like holding your touching batteries and stuff like that. So it was really helpful and I think a lot of other kids would like it. I thought that I was like the only one who had worrying about the weather and stuff. And then there was somebody else on there who worried about the same thing, which was really helpful. Seems less scary to work on stuff now that I've watched this class and I'm more interested to work on it. I like trying to do more exposures still and going to, before I wasn't, I just didn't want to do them. I've worked on some of my bigger compulsions and been successful. I realized that it was helpful to do like the exposures before it was like really, really hard. It's still hard, but it's helpful to know that I need to do them. Before there would be a lot of battles about it, 
So it is definitely less loggerheads. Really, really good course and super helpful. Definitely would recommend this. It's really easy to follow. It's in nice bite-sized videos. I really like the worksheets that go along with it, and I think it's really helpful. To learn more about this course and register your child or teen, go to atparentingsurvivalschool.com. Welcome back. All right, so I want to go through the list that I just discussed with giving you more specifics about what we can do as parents and even as clinicians. So the first one I brought up was talking about it making it worse. I always like to counteract anxiety or OCD right from the get-go before I even know that's a full-blown problem. If I see some resistance in talking about it, I will say, and you can say this to your kids, anxiety or OCD, whichever one they have or both, and this is especially with OCD though, I will have to say, OCD really gets in people's heads about not talking about it. So maybe I would talk about it differently. Let's just break it down in two separate conversations. So anxiety, I would say anxiety's biggest meal, the way your anxiety grows physiologically, depending on how old your child is, is you feed it by avoidance. Avoidance is the number one way anxiety grows. The more you avoid, the bigger your anxiety grows. And the best way anxiety can make sure that you are going to permanently avoid is by not even allowing you to talk about anxiety. I mean, game over because you're not even willing to talk about it. And so anxiety doesn't even have to do that much work because it's like, boom, drop the mic. Is that too old? Am I showing my age? Drop the mic. I don't care. And I am done with this because she's not even going to talk about it with you. So there, right? So getting our kids to see how they're being manipulated by their anxiety in some way can be really, really helpful, especially when we personify it. You know, Mr. Worry's not even letting you talk about it. And Mr. Worry knows that if you don't talk about it, you can't really make any progress because the more we know about your anxiety and the more you are able to talk about it, the less power it has. And so I would say in and of itself, make talking about anxiety your first step. You know, we talk about exposures and doing challenges. And a lot of times when kids are not willing to even talk about it, sometimes the first step is getting them comfortable with the idea of hearing about anxiety or OCD then talking about it. And those are two therapeutic steps before you do anything else that you might deem as treatment-oriented. Same thing with OCD. I would say to kids, OCD is all about teaching you demands. OCD is very demanding. It'll tell you to do this, don't do that, avoid this, don't do that. And OCD doesn't want you to talk about it because OCD knows that you're going to get the skills to defeat it and crush it and make it smaller. And so that's scary for OCD. And so it will increase the volume on the fear and say, do not talk about this. They're going to think you're crazy or they're going to, you know, make it worse for you or you're going to have more intrusive thoughts. When in reality, the more you don't talk about OCD, the more intrusive thoughts you actually will have over time. The more you talk about it, you rock the boat, the more you shrink OCD. And so that's how I talk about it for OCD. And then the approach would be the same. I would want to know what's the hardest part about them talking about it. And so is it because they perceive that it's going to make it worse? And so we want to have that conversation that I just kind of role-played for you. Sometimes there's also a level of stigma attached. And so normalizing it by showing them famous people who have anxiety or OCD, watching videos. There is um, the Netflix. I was just watching this. There's a, a Netflix series with Oprah. And Prince Harry, 
Let me. Do you know what I'm talking about? What is it called? I was just watching it. Okay, I had to look it up. It's on Apple TV for me, but it's the me you can't see. I don't know where it actually is on, but I found it on Apple TV for me. But the me you can't see is a great, depending on how old your child is, that's a great documentary to normalize anxiety or OCD, mental health issues in general, or maybe just getting them to watch YouTube videos of people talking about their experiences. They're going on Instagram and there's a lot of OCD advocates who talk about their experiences. Uh, So I think finding people who they admire, and there's always a role model that you can find that talks about their anxiety or OCD. I mean, there's so many that are coming out now that really would help validate and normalize that. So I would start with that. Um, And so I might gamify it and give them you know, bravery points for watching a video or listening to something. And so they're not having to talk about it, but what we're doing is normalizing it for them first. And then they might get points just for, we're going to discuss your anxiety or OCD for five minutes a day or have them. I always like to put the power in my kids and say, how long do you want to talk about this today? And then, you know, let your child decide the parameters if possible if they're willing and cooperative, because then that really puts them in that role of being in the driver's seat. So that's the first one. The next one, and I don't remember the order that I told you these. And so forgive me if they're out of order. Medication issues. Medication issues are really tricky and it can depend on the different topics that we talked about. And so I would want to get to the core fear of why they don't want to take medication. Is it a non-anxiety and OCD fear? That's something different, right? I always have had conversations with my kids who are all on medication, by the way, about what they want. You know, do you want to take this medication? And uh, what are your fears related to that? So my oldest daughter, who's 19 now, was having incredibly debilitating panic attacks. And, you know, I had panic attacks at that age. Her father had panic attacks. So she was getting it genetically on both sides. And so I was telling her, I felt like medication can help her. And she was, I think, in eighth grade at the time. And she has health anxiety and a terrible fear of putting anything in her body. And so does her dad. And her dad kind of conveyed that message to her in her life, you know, that you shouldn't take Motrin. Motrin's bad. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, but it was generated by health anxiety. Like it's poison. I don't want to put that in my body. And so she didn't want to take any medication. I said, there is medication that, you know, that your, you know, relatives are on that will help you. And she did not want to. And I honored that, you know, and I just said, because it's her body, she's in eighth grade and I want her to feel in control. And so we talked about the science behind it. I explained how it works and she made that decision. Maybe I think it was a year later to go on that medication and she's 19 and she's still on the medication. It's a lower dose. She's developed a lot of coping skills as well, but she had to realize we had to address the health anxiety, you know, what the health anxiety was telling her versus the reality of it. And so, you know, addressing whatever their core issue is, if they're, if they're afraid I'm going to be a different person, you know, does that really happen on certain medications? You know, a lot of times people generalize what will happen on an SSRI versus, you know, a different type of medication. And so sometimes there's this general globalization of like, this is how it's going to be. And it's different for each person and different medications. And so having that discussion is really important. A lot of times it's the fear of throwing up. 
there are certain SSRIs that will make you more nauseous than others. And so I know for my kids who have emetophobia and stomach issues, I didn't, I wasn't, didn't want them to go on Zoloft. I wanted them to go on Paxil because Paxil doesn't make you as nauseous. That was my experience anecdotally. I'm not a psychiatrist. There's my disclaimer, but I just presented that, you know, that that was my concern as a parent and that was valued and honored. And my kids never had any stomach issues and they felt better going on a medicine that they knew was less likely to make them feel nauseous. And so find out what it is about that core fear. What is the scare? And this is the questions that I ask my kids or the kids that in my practice, what's the scariest part about going on this medication? Because I do want to honor if a child doesn't want to go on medication, it's not my job to force them to go on medication. In my opinion, that's my approach. You know, even if I feel like it can help them, I want them to feel that they have some agency in what they're doing to their body and what they want to do to themselves. If their anxiety or OCD theme is sabotaging the very thing that can help make their progress, I want to point that out. And I want to highlight that your OCD is actually sabotaging the help that you can get. So it is a different conversation if you have a child who just is philosophically not wanting to embrace medication at that point versus this is part of my theme. And like with my kids, the fear of throw up or the side effects, I was able to directly address that and make it easier. Now, my son also has a choking issue. And so for a while he was very anti-medication, but when we talked about what it is that bothers him about the medication in a very open, open receptive sort of way, not like what's wrong with taking medication, but like, what's the scariest part for you? You know, cause I just want to know where it's coming from. It was about swallowing pills because his core fear is choking. And so um, we found pills that were so tiny and they dissolve in his mouth. And then he wasn't worried about it anymore. So do your exploration on that and see if you can address that in that way. Okay, moving on from there. Separation anxiety from a parent in the session. I feel like as a therapist, you use that as a therapeutic exercise. And so I typically have the parent come in the session for quite a while to get that child comfortable, even though that wasn't my style in therapy. I always like to meet with the child alone. I'd meet with the parents alone, and then I meet with the child alone, and then I'd go back and forth. That's kind of how I would do it. And when it was separation anxiety, I would have them both come in initially. I wanted to build the child rapport and get them feeling comfortable before um, they started to panic. And then we might do exposures around having a session or a 10-minute part of the session with your parent in the waiting room and then build up from there. Can they leave the building? And if if the separation anxiety wasn't that severe and extreme, I would start with having the child meet with me alone because I did feel like that was better because once you start a certain way, it's harder to break it. So once you start together, it's hard to, to separate them out. And it's also their personality changes. So like Whatever personality someone shows you in the very beginning, they stick with it. That's what I've noticed in therapy. So if a child is showing me their personality in front of their parent, whether that is more obnoxious or more shy, let the parent talk for me, that is the personality that sticks even when the parent goes away. That's what I found for the most part, not always. And so to set myself up for success, I I ideally like to have the child meet with me alone without the parent, because then I eventually get the really authentic, pure child versus what they look like in front of their parent. We all look different in front of 
our partners or our kids or our best friends. Like we have different personas. But when separation anxiety is going to be the issue and it's going to sabotage therapy, then I just meet with the parent and the child together and I use it as an exposure. So that's separation anxiety. The next one, social anxiety, is you want to recognize and you have to address that in therapy that I know it's hard talking to a stranger. I get it, you know? And I know that having social anxiety, you know, we worry about feeling judged and we worry about feeling overwhelmed. And and so with social anxiety, it might be just, can we meet for five minutes? Can we meet for 10 minutes? And then building up from there in small increments, can I meet with my parent, right? Now, sometimes that would also help because if it's either you're not going to be in therapy at all, or you can be in therapy with my mom or vice versa. I feel uncomfortable with my mom there. She might judge me or I can't be myself with my mom and you. So ask your child, what would make you the most comfortable? Do you need me in there or would you rather do it on your own? And don't take it personally. It's about their social anxiety. And for the therapist, I would do a lot of rapport building for a long time before I even started to work on the issue. And so a lot of finding out what they like and talking about what they like, them getting to know me and me sharing information about me, I think I'm the type of therapist that feels like it's really important for it not to be one way. I'm a human and you're going to open up to me hopefully eventually. And so let me make myself human as well. And so I think it's good to, to show that human side of yourself. So that's social anxiety. When we're dealing with numbers, and I know I'm skipping around and I'm like going down my list, but I want to make sure I cover each one. And a lot of kids have multiple ones of these, so it can all be relevant. But when we're dealing with numbers, we want to be aware when our kids are throwing out numbers because of their anxiety or OCD theme and not because they truly feel like on a one to 10 scale, they're that number. A lot of times I can tell because they'll be like (laughs) 4.5. No, it's a six. No, it's 4.5. I'm not sure. You know, so I I could tell, or I notice they always give me odd numbers, or they always give me even numbers. I'll start to notice things like that. So it's just about paying attention and then moving away from numbers altogether. Because you know, if you're using it as a therapeutic measuring tool, the validity of that measuring tool is just thrown out the window because they're they're saying it based on their OCD, and so it's not it's not worth using at all. Sometimes I'd move to colors. Just tell me if you're like green, yellow, or red, or I drop it all together and I just read their body language as we're doing stuff. You don't have to do a scale in order to be effective. When it comes to moral OCD and having them confess they're not listening to me, I just, what I said to that one kid was, okay, well, you may or may not be listening to me, but that's okay. I'm going to keep going on. So instead of reassuring him, which I actually did for a few sessions until I was like, oh my gosh, done, Natasha. This is a confession. This is a compulsion. I would say to him, oh, I'm sure you're listening. No, you've been looking at me the whole time. You're fine, right? Well, it's really completing the OCD loop. And then over time, when I realized it, I said, you know, I'm noticing that's an OCD behavior. And from now, I'm going to respond with, "Um, you may or may not be listening to me, and that's okay. And over time, we even kind of got jokey where I was like, I can't believe you don't ever listen to me. And so you can even bring it up a notch. Another thing that is I find really interesting that I didn't mention in the first part of this podcast, but I want to mention here is sometimes the OCD will attack the therapist. And I've had that happen to me quite a few times where it will say stuff like, my OCD is saying that you're fat, Natasha, or my OCD is saying that you're a horrible therapist. And it's a confession. It's a compulsion. And so my response to that is to not take it personally 
and to just be like, okay, well, thanks to your OCD and let's do some exposures around that. You know, let's role play and I'll role play that that hurt my feelings or, you know, just moving into that professional realm of using that again as more material to work on in therapy. When we're dealing with people pleasing and you're not getting a really good read on how well things are going, that's why it's so important to meet with the parent. And that's why for you as the parents, it's important for you to meet with a therapist and give that therapist a true objective or your perspective view, which is much more objective than what we're getting from our client. It's what you're seeing. Sometimes a child's doing worse than what you think because it's all in their head and they're struggling inside. And so what you see looks pretty good, but what is going on in their head is not going well. And sometimes it's the other way around where the child is going to convey that they're doing well, or they think they're doing well. And it's not true. You're seeing a lot of struggles in a lot of different areas. And that's why it's so important for you to meet with a therapist alone and let them know what you're seeing. Because I've had a lot of kids that I worked with that I thought they were doing phenomenal. And then the parent would let me know during the parent sessions of all these things that were going wrong. And I realized that they were just trying to have either they're trying to get out of therapy or more often than not, they were trying to, you know, get an A plus in therapy and we don't want that. And so we want it to be genuine and authentic. If you're not able to meet with them alone and send them an email, it is much better to do that than to do that in front of your child, unless you are feeling like it'll be therapeutic, but sometimes it puts your child on the defense when you're saying they're actually not doing well. I know they're telling you they're doing well right here, but they're not doing well. That, that just adds more shame and uh, embarrassment and it shuts the child down even more. So unless you talk to the child first and say, I really feel like it's important to be open. You don't have to be perfect. It's okay for, she's there to help you. You can work as a team that way. But if you feel like you're not going to be able to reach your child, then just email or ask for a one-on-one session. Okay. The last one, I never had OCD, (laughs) is OCD's final ninja hack you know, to get you to come back to the board and finish playing the game is important to let kids know that that is a very common thing to happen when you're making progress. And so OCD will tell you that maybe you didn't even have OCD. OCD is the doubting disease. It loves uncertainty. And when you're making progress, it's going to use that to give you all sorts of things. It's going to say, maybe you actually like these thoughts. Maybe these thoughts have always been you because it's so easy for you to do an exposure around them. Maybe it's because you like these thoughts. Or you got better so fast, so maybe you never actually had OCD to begin with, and you caused all this trouble, and your mom had to spend, or your mom and dad had to spend all this money, and so it makes them feel bad. And so I think it's important for us as parents and therapists to let kids know that that's a very common uh, tactic that OCD has, and a very common intrusive thought when you're making progress. Do you believe I have a YouTube video on that somewhere? And just letting them know that can really disarm them and help them move forward. So regardless of what is going on, it is important to always look at how anxiety or OCD is impacting treatment. And those are just a a few of the many ways that it can impact treatment. So as a parent, being aware, because you have a front row seat to your child's anxiety and OCD themes and how it might show up, you also have, you know, a lot of you are privy to the conversation after therapy of like, what things do your kids talk about? And that could be a clue of if they're complaining, oh, you know, if they had social anxiety and they come back and they start to complain, 
oh my gosh, you know, that was so uncomfortable. I think she doesn't like me. You know, I think that she thinks that my ideas are stupid. Like pay attention to how your child's processing treatment. If they're taking medication and they're making comments before or after, or if they're not taking it at all, what are those comments? You know, are they saying, is this going to make me sick? Or, you know, tell me the statistics on this. Or if they're saying, you know, I like who I am and I don't want this to change me. Listen to what they're saying, because that is a window into what the barrier is for them. If it is related to their anxiety or OCD directly. So I hope that you found this helpful. It is always good to just stay one step ahead. Um, I want to thank my AT Parenting community members who came up with this topic and they were talking about wanting to discuss how medication barriers are impacted when it is related to their anxiety or OCD theme that's causing them not to take their medication. thought that was a phenomenal topic, but I always try to ask myself, how can I broaden topics even bigger so that it's relevant to even more people who listen to this podcast? And so I broadened it, but they are amazing parents who are often giving me the topics that you are hearing about on this podcast and on my YouTube channel. So a shout out to my members. Um, if you want to learn more about the AT Parenting Community, you can always go to atparentingcommunity.com. We will be opening up the doors in a few weeks. And so you can get on the wait list so you learn more about that. They get a lot of indirect, ongoing support, one-on-one help with me. You know, they're able to access the forums where they can talk to me directly. They get live classes each week. We have Zoom calls each month. The kids are connecting. It's an, an amazing community. And that is my membership community, AT Parenting Community. So if you are enjoying the podcast, uh, don't forget to hit a star on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, wherever you consume your podcast. If you have a few extra minutes and you can leave a review, I greatly appreciate it. If you leave a review uh, to show my gratitude, I'd like to read one of them if there is one that is new when I'm recording. And I want to thank Jilly, who did write something. She wrote, so helpful. I began listening to Natasha four years ago when my daughter was first experiencing anxiety. I always found her podcast very informative and helpful. I love her refreshing storytelling. She gives clear advice and guidance with personal experiences. I just discovered that my daughter's anxiety has led to OCD behaviors, and I found the perfect episode to help me as I struggled to find my place as her support. Thank you, Natasha. It was just what I needed. I'm so glad to hear that. I try to have a podcast on every topic, and I'm glad you found one that fit your needs. If you are finding the podcast helpful and you leave a review, maybe I'll be reading your review next time. So don't forget to find the sparkle in everything you do. And I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com.